need to understand this. We'll see it unfold in Daniel chapter 10. It is a war that affects the events that unfold on the stage of human history. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom begins a new four-part series titled The Spiritual War Behind World History. The theme of the Old Testament book of Daniel is that God is completely and totally sovereign over the affairs of empires, nations, kings, and indeed, every individual's life. It's in Daniel chapter 10 where you get one of the clearest glimpses into the spiritual war that rages behind the scenes, a war between powerful spiritual beings, the unseen war between angels and demons. This spiritual war has had direct and immediate results on the grand stage of world history. In today's part one, Tom explains Daniel's amazing and shocking vision. And Tom, what are a few of the lessons that we as Christians today can learn from this study? You know, Bill, I think the most encouraging thing is the lesson that not only is God with his people in the large sweeping scope of historical events, but God is with individual believers as they're going through the difficult circumstances of this life. You know, that's unavoidable in this fallen world. Job says a man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward, but, but at the same time, God promises in his word that he will never abandon or forsake his people. And in Psalm 23, David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. And Daniel's message in this wonderful chapter echoes what the psalmist writes, that our God is and always will be with us in the midst of our trouble. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. There are really only a few passages in Scripture that describe the unseen spiritual world that surrounds us and the spiritual battle that rages. We get glimpses of that battle even in heaven, for example, in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and in Job 2, verse 1, we see that Satan himself enters into the presence of God in order to accuse believers like Job, like us. He's known as the accuser of the brethren. There's another fascinating glimpse in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19 and following, where Micaiah the prophet sort of pulls back the, the screen and allows us, or the curtain rather, and allows us to see into the throne room of God, as God asks, already having decided what he will accomplish, he asks for the feedback of the angels, and they describe how there's one said this and another said that, and, and God responds as he holds counsel with these amazing beings. There are also glimpses of this reality on earth. I want you to turn to 2 Kings as we begin. Keep your hand there in Daniel, but turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Here you have 
a plot by the king of Aram to war against Israel. And verse 14 of 2 Kings 6 says, He sent horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city of Dothan. Verse 15, Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What you have in that fascinating passage is is God allowed, in answer to the prayer of Elisha, again, the curtain to be pulled back and for the servant of Elisha to see the spiritual reality that around this planet, involved with the the events of human history, involved with, with human wars and kings, there is an unseen spiritual battle that rages. The passage that we come to tonight, Daniel chapter 10, provides us, I think, one of the clearest glimpses into that spiritual war that rages between powerful spiritual beings. And it is a war, and you need to understand this. We'll see it unfold in Daniel chapter 10. It is a war that affects the events that unfold on the stage of human history. In other words, the unseen war between angels and demons has direct and immediate results on the stage of world history. Tonight, we begin our study of Daniel's final vision. This last vision actually runs to the very end of the book, from chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to chapter 12, verse 13. The prophecy that we will see unfold in these chapters extends from the time of Daniel and the kings of Persia all the way until the future kingdom of God is established on this planet. In fact, these chapters are going to deal with some of the very same events that have already been described in Daniel chapter 8. But here, particularly in chapter 11, we will see in much greater detail, especially regarding the empire of Greece. Daniel chapter 10 is really just the introduction to the final vision, the vision that unfolds and begins in chapter 11 and runs through the end of the book. But this chapter, chapter 10, is is very important. It's not only an introduction, but it provides some fascinating insights into the activity of angels and demons in our world. It describes for us the spiritual war that lies behind world history. Now, as we begin our study of this last vision of Daniel, let me give you an outline just so you, if you don't get this down, that's fine. It'll be on the slides. You can see it um, when you look online later, and we'll go through it as we walk our way through. This is just to give you an overview. You have, first of all, here in chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 1, the introduction to Daniel's final vision. 
We'll walk through this, but it begins with a, the difficult setting of the vision in the first three verses of chapter 10. Then in chapters four, or excuse me, in verses four through nine, there is a terrifying vision of a heavenly being. We'll look at that tonight. That's followed by the unsettling explanation of the angel in verses 10 through 14. And then chapter 10, verse 15, through chapter 11, verse 1, you see the gracious preparation of the prophet to receive the prophecy itself. And that brings us to the second part of these three chapters, and that is the content of Daniel's final vision. That begins in chapter 11, verse 2, and runs all the way through the end of chapter 12. And in this final vision, there are prophecies regarding a number of realities. There are prophecies regarding Persia, regarding Greece, regarding Egypt and Syria, regarding a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, whom we've already met earlier in this book, prophecies regarding Antichrist in much greater detail than we have seen them before, prophecies regarding the Great Tribulation, and it ends, verse 13 of chapter 12, with prophecies regarding Daniel the prophet himself. We're going to see all of that unfold, but that is a a broad sweeping outline of what we will discover. So let's begin where the text begins with the introduction to Daniel's final vision. Let's read together Daniel chapter 10, and I'm just going to read the first nine verses because just, uh, you know, honesty in advertising, that's as far as we're getting tonight. So Daniel chapter 10, let's read the first nine verses. You follow along. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict or war. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. And I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body also was like burl, and his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deadly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. This is God's eternal, inspired, inerrant word. We need to listen to it. Now, this introduction begins by describing for us, as I mentioned to you, the difficult setting behind this vision. We encounter this in the first three verses. Notice verse 1 begins, 
in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed. So this final revelation to Daniel, this final vision, this final prophecy that begins in chapter 10 and runs through chapter 12, it came to him in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. In chapter 7 through 12, there are recorded for us four separate visions that Daniel had. Each of them is dated by the timing of the kings. Two of the visions came in the first and third years of Belshazzar, and two of the visions came in the first and third years of Cyrus. In chapter 9, it actually calls it the first year of Darius, but that was the same as the first year of Cyrus. So the first and third years of Belshazzar, the first and third years of Cyrus. That means between the two groups of visions, there were about 13 years that passed. Here, this last vision comes in the third year of Cyrus. The year would have been about 535 B.C. You remember that Cyrus came to power and conquered Babylon, and he made an edict that the people could return, and this comes three years after those events, in the year 535 or perhaps 536 B.C. It's about two years after Gabriel appeared to Daniel in chapter 9 and gave him the 70 weeks prophecy, and it's only a short time after the first group of Jewish captives would have returned to the land of Israel from Babylon. By the way, this, this happens, what we're reading here in chapter 10, happens about the same time as Daniel's incarceration in the lion's den. We don't know if it was before or after, but it's around the same time according to what he records. Now verse 1 goes on to say, in the third year of Cyrus king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. Daniel mentions his Babylonian name probably to underscore that he's the very same person that we met back in chapter 1. That's where he explained that this name was given to him by Nebuchadnezzar. In this year, in the third year of Cyrus, in the year 536 B.C., Daniel had, don't miss this, had been in captivity for 70 years. In addition to that, he is now probably close to 85 years of age, a faithful man who served his Lord throughout his life and now is nearing the end of that life. Now, we aren't told why Daniel is still in Babylon, why he didn't return with that first group of exiles returning. Perhaps it was because of his age and the long and difficult journey to the land of Israel, or perhaps it's because, and I think uh, this is where I lean, because he concluded that he could best serve his people by continuing in Babylon where he could be a voice on their behalf, where he could speak for them. Verse 1 goes on to say, and the message that I received was true. Daniel says, listen, I'm going to tell you some extraordinary things that I received and heard, but what I heard is absolutely true. And then he says, the message was one of great conflict. The Hebrew text says that the message he received had to do literally with a great war. 
It concerned a great war. Now, this could describe a a future war on earth, or it could describe the war between demons and angels, between God and Satan. Both of those concepts are contained in these chapters. I think it's all inclusive. I think Daniel means all of the conflict, all of the war that he will unfold in these three chapters, whether they're human wars between nations or whether they are spiritual war between angels and demons. He goes on in verse 1 to say, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Daniel came, as we will see it unfold, with the help of an angel to understand the content of the revelation that he had received. And according to verse 12, this understanding came in answer to his prayer and his ongoing prayers. Through the previous three visions that Daniel had received, God had already told him a lot about Israel's future, but Daniel still wants to understand more. Notice verse 12, you set your heart to understand. Verse 14, I have come to give you understanding. So he he already had received a, a lot of information, a lot of revelation about what was coming concerning the nation of Israel, but he wanted to better understand it, and he wanted to know more. Now, you need the setting here to understand what's going on, why Daniel is disturbed, why he's mourning, why he's praying. By the third year of Cyrus, when this vision occurs, the first wave of Jewish exiles and captives had returned from Babylon to the land of Israel. But their circumstances there were desperate. Their efforts to rebuild the temple faced immediate and heavy opposition from the Samaritans. In fact, keep your finger here, but turn back to Ezra. Ezra chapter 4. Ezra 4 documents the opposition that they faced. Notice chapter 4 of Ezra verse 1. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers and said, let us build with you. This was their first approach, get the people to compromise and and undermine the work. When that wasn't accepted, verse 3, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. We will build this house. Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. So in other words, they, they leave compromise as an approach to undermine the work of God, and they move to intimidation, to fear. They hired counselors, verse 5, against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In other words, they hired professional counselors, professional representatives who would go back to Babylon and who would do everything they could to undermine the building of the temple and the, the restructuring uh, of the people there in the land. So this is what they were facing. Eventually, the worst happens. Notice verse 24, then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It's possible 
that when the events of Daniel chapter 10 are unfolding, construction has already come to a halt, that they have been intimidated out of building, they have been, their plans have been frustrated, they have gotten the government of Persia to agree that they need to stop building. The enemies of God have gotten that approved. Now, if Daniel was still involved in government at this time, as he probably was, he would have access to these reports from Israel. If so, then, what was happening in the land of Israel led to Daniel's heightened level of concern, and it would have driven him to prayer. In addition to that, we know from history that in the third year of his reign, Cyrus went abroad, and he left his son to act as his regent. And his son, in response to the correspondence from the enemies of Israel in the land, issued a formal edict, a formal decree halting the continued rebuilding of the temple, as we just read in Ezra. That's the the general introduction to the times in verse 1. Now, after that brief introduction, Daniel describes his own circumstances beginning in verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. The Hebrew word translated mourning here is used to refer to mourning of the the most heartfelt and heart-wrenching kind. It's used for mourning for the dead. It's used for mourning over sin. It's used for mourning because of extreme calamity. And in Hebrew, the form of the word that's used, it's it's a participle, carries the idea of continual mourning. Daniel was in a state of perpetual mourning. Literally, the Hebrew text says, for three sevens of days. He probably included the sevens of days to keep confusing it with the sevens of weeks we met back in chapter 9. In other words, he's talking about three weeks. And for three weeks, Daniel was in mourning. And during those three weeks, notice verse 3, I did not eat any tasty food, nor. Now, that Hebrew conjunction translated as nor there can also be be translated as even. If that's what Daniel meant, then he's saying the tasty food that he refused to eat was meat and wine. Or he may mean I didn't take any delicacies and I didn't take meat and wine. Either way, what he's saying is that for three weeks, he ate only necessary food in a kind of semi-fast. Perhaps he limited himself to, to bread and water or to something else restrictive. Now, why does he fast? Understand this. The Bible doesn't demand fasting in the Old Testament. On the Old Testament law, there was only one fast that was demanded, and that was the fast on the Day of Atonement. Every other fast in the Old Testament law was entirely and completely voluntary. Most of the fasts, you can research it yourself, most of them lasted for only a portion of a day, usually the daylight hours. And fasts were usually connected to circumstances that would naturally lead a person to spend time seeking the Lord in prayer rather than engaging in normal activities like eating. This is why Daniel was fasting. It was to give him time for extended and focused prayer. Notice verse 12. 
the angel says to Daniel, do not, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, this is what was happening through these three weeks, humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. So he was praying, he was humbling himself, he was setting his heart on trying to understand, and the angel says, I have come in response to your words. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled The Spiritual War Behind World History. Tom will bring you part two next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music